Hi everyone and welcome back to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. Can you believe that we're on episode 6 and well into May 2021? And I just wanted to say that I hope everyone is doing okay with all of the chops and changes of life right now. A very exciting announcement from me is that we finally made it onto Apple Podcasts. Whoop! Um, I'm so excited about that. And if you are enjoying these conversations, if you're liking what you're listening to, I would be so grateful if you wouldn't mind heading over and dropping us a five-star review and some feedback. It's so invaluable for us as it really helps us to reach more people and get a sense of if you're enjoying uh, these episodes. So if you fancy doing a good deed of the day because you're really enjoying this podcast, I would be so, so grateful. Right, on to today's episode. Today's episode is all about things gut, stress, and IBS. Bloating, gas, wind, IBS, constipation, diarrhea, they're all things that can touch us or people we know to some extent. And since the rise of wellness, I feel like one of the most common messages out there have been to just cut things out, with gluten and dairy probably being the most common food items that we've been told to take out. And whilst, of course, this is sometimes warranted, celiac disease, um, lactose intolerance or a gluten allergy, there's been a huge rise in people taking these items out of their diet with no underlying medical reason and also a huge rise in IgG food intolerance testing, which we know aren't accurate and a lot of scaremongering around different foods. So in this episode, I talk to health psychologist, chartered psychologist, and cognitive behavioral therapist, Dr. Sula Windgassen, whose PhD from King's College London looked at mindfulness and other psychological-based interventions for IBS. I first heard Sula speak at a conference where she discussed the mind's part in the mind-gut connection. And I was so grateful to hear the psychological elements of gut health being spoken about rather than this baseline idea that it's always about the food. Sula is also a mindfulness practitioner and works in the NHS, the South London and Maudsley NHS Trust Foundations, or NHS Foundation Trusts, uh, developing and delivering services in the long-term conditions care pathway for Croydon talking therapies. Her current research focuses on women's health and the applications of psychosocial support to improve symptom severity and quality of life. In this episode, Sula shares a lot about her PhD and also some of her own experiences of coming to this work, which sparked her passion to help improve the experiences of those with these long-term conditions, particularly women experiencing bladder and pelvic issues. Sula, thank you so, so much for coming on to the podcast for this episode. I absolutely loved chatting to you and again, was so grateful to you to share so much of your personal experience as well. Just before we get started, I want to introduce today's sponsor. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to introduce our sponsor, Simprove. Simprove is a unique water-based food supplement that contains four strains of live and active bacteria. These active bacteria are delivered to the gut and more specifically our large intestine to support the microbiome the trillions of bacteria in the gut that confer numerous benefits to our mental and physical well-being. Much research has emerged on the gut microbiome recently, showing the role it plays on our immune systems, metabolism, endocrine system, and our brain and mental well-being. 
There are plenty of supplements on the market. However, the jury is sometimes out on how these may impact each of us differently. And some strains of bacteria are shown to fail to make it through our stomach's battery of acids alive. An independent study carried out by UCL on products containing bacteria did, however, find that Simproof passed three important tests that means it was successful in surviving, arriving and thriving in the gut and colonising our large intestine. Simproof comes in either an original or mango and passion fruit flavour and you may enjoy a small shot first thing in the morning. If you would like to try Simproof, they have kindly offered listeners of the podcast 15% off on their first order using the code 50SHADES at the checkout. You will need to go to www.simproof.com to redeem this offer. Codes are available to use on a 12-week course for UK customers only. Right, let's get to today's episode. Welcome, Sula. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is so exciting to have you here. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, So, um, Sula, uh, I know that you are an expert in all things um, IBS and you are um, specializing in the psychological areas and how psychology can impact um, the gut and IBS. But I was hoping that you might be able to give a bit more of an introduction about you and about some of your work and perhaps about how you came to this area. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I'm a health psychologist and CBT therapist. And I think, you know, some people know what health psychologist is, but um, a lot of people don't actually. So it's, um, it's a really broad field, health psychology. It can be everything from health promotion from a kind of public health stance and you promoting you know um health messages like doing more exercise and healthy eating but kind of from behind a computer screen and marketing campaigns and things but it can also be you know aimed at behavior change interventions aimed at improving health behaviors too but more one-on-one working or kind of mass group interventions but my area of health psychology that i specialize in is using psychological techniques and um, psychotherapy to improve either quality of life of people with long-term health conditions or health conditions um, or you know for some conditions it might be that the the strategies we use and the approaches we use can actually improve symptom severity and irritable bowel syndrome is one of those particular health conditions that I work with where we know that the psychological approaches um, that we use improve symptom severity and but that's what my PhD was on um, I worked on a large randomized control trial the the largest randomized control trial that's been conducted actually looking at whether remote um, based CBT cognitive behavioral therapy was effective for reducing symptom severity enhancing um, quality of life or more accurately reducing the impact on daily life um, and also you know improving anxiety and depression in in people with refractory ibs so what that means is people whose symptoms haven't improved over a year of trying the kind of first line approaches so that's medications perhaps the fodmap diet 
and other things like that and the trial got amazing results you know it's really really effective no matter there was three conditions a control arm which was just treatment as usual um a, a website arm um where people got some therapist contact over the phone but it was only uh, five sessions in total for half an hour or a telephone based cbt where they got given a manual and their phone sessions um, there were more of them and they were an hour long and my phd was looking at how that was effective so the trial measured whether it was and luckily it was so that my phd findings was were valid um to to look at you know why that was the case um and particularly looking at the mechanisms of you know uh, bowel related thoughts and anxiety um, and bowel related behaviors and the kind of importance of targeting them in a course of CBT to, to improve symptom severity um, and in terms of how I got on you know into this field um, it was really because well I did a psychology degree and the module that I enjoyed most was health psychology but I kind of got sidetracked and went off and did a year of um, being a marketing manager because I'd started working as a marketing assistant during my studies and then everyone left Leeds where I did my university degree and um, suddenly it was really really lonely and I was working in a job that I didn't really enjoy very much and um, questioning you know what I wanted to do and who I was um, because all the things that kind of identified me as a person in my own mind were changed and it was really really stressful and then um, I started getting uh, cystitis um, infections recurrently which I'd had before um, but they just weren't budging and every time I would get some treatment whether it was a course of antibiotics or another course of antibiotics or some kind of um, sachets or whatever it might be it was changing slightly um, the, the symptom presentation but it was never fully going um, and I was getting more and more worried about it and what that meant and whether I'd be stuck with it and you know it was, it was really alarming it caused me a lot of anxiety um, made me withdraw a lot and i did all the things that i see you know my patients do um which you know it's honing on the symptoms try and find a solution um withdraw from things that give you pleasure and um yeah it became a bit of a vicious cycle and i got really depressed and then i started getting migraines on top of things and it was just a really awful year um, and it was my dad who's a psychiatrist so he's not um, trained to give psychotherapy but he was doing a, a master's in mindfulness at the time and his partner's a clinical psychologist working with um, long-term conditions particularly pain and initially he suggested to me why don't you try mindfulness which I got a bit affronted by because I was thinking you know I've got something physical I've got these ongoing infections why would you suggest that but then um, his partner, who was a bit more tactful and skilled at this kind of thing, gave me a really good explanation about why helping the mind with something like mindfulness might be really helpful to help the physical sensations. And she gave me a really good description and explanation of, you know, how pain and the mind um, interact uh, and what you know the current situation that i was in was doing um in terms of you know focusing on the pain and worrying about the pain and how that kind of makes me more hypersensitized and causes a lot of stress and all of these things are likely to exacerbate symptoms and that made a lot of sense to me so i was happy to 
at least dip my toe in and I watched this documentary called Healing in the Mind with John Kabat-Zinn um, who is you know the the founder of mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction courses which have been used a lot with great efficacy in, in um, various long-term condition populations and um, that was it really I was like I need to go and study this and explore more. Wow wow um, Sula thank you so much for, for sharing some of your experience there I, I actually um, didn't know that but I thought it was such a powerful uh, story and how perhaps you um, kind of became aware of, of the importance of perhaps some of the psychological um, workings or, or the power of the mind in mm. what we might consider very physical conditions and how you had that experience yourself. Absolutely yeah and I, I think that you know a lot of the time we query I think as psychologists how much we should disclose um, whether it's helpful or whether it's not but I, I think you know that personal experience really has helped me understand where clients are coming from and some of the mechanisms and kind of uh, catalyzed me and yeah <laughs> emboldened me to, to kind of help people. Yeah I, I don't know what you you mean there and and I guess as somebody working in nutrition, it's a similar kind of um, question that I often find myself asking, you know, how much is helpful to disclose. And, and I also work with some psychologists. And I think sometimes there is something powerful about working with somebody that has had a similar kind of experience that can empathize mm. on that level when it, when it does feel helpful to share, when it feels like it's beneficial um, to somebody else rather than perhaps just, just for ourselves and, and people yeah. can, can connect with that. Yeah, absolutely. So Sula, we talked about um, IBS and, and I'm really keen to kind of get there, especially as that was your area and, and to perhaps uh, talk a little bit more about some of those interventions that you used in your PhD that were found to be a little bit more effective. But I'm curious if just before then we might be able to think about just you know, how important the psychological aspects can be in, in what we might think of as, as physical conditions. And, you know, I'm curious even about the ways in which we dichotomize between what might be a mental health condition and what might be a physical health condition. And, and I just was really curious to get your thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, we know theoretically anyway, um, we know that there's a, a mind-body connection, you know, so that any of our sensations, you know, they wouldn't exist without some brain activity, right? <laughs> they're, they're wired in with something going on in the brain. And then, of course, the brain generally doesn't do things in, you know, in, in just one brain region and isolation. There's a lot of kind of coordination across the central nervous system. And if we can understand that, you know, that boils down to the way we move, what we feel, you know, all these things, um, you know, our emotions, everything. So physical sensations and health experiences are no different to that respect. But I think for, for people, it can be really hard um, to not fall into, I guess, you know, all or nothing assumptions about this mind-body link. So there's a terrible tendency, I think, for, you know, health professionals and, and sometimes psychologists, mental health professionals um, and patients as well to, to kind of think, if you're saying there's a psychological aspect to this, then it means it's all in my head. And there have been really unhelpful messages that 
you know have come from various places for a lot of people in that regard um, but that's not the case at all it's more a case of things you know in the body of working together interacting um, so for example pain research shows us now that pain's more akin to an emotion because it's not as simple as you have a nerve signal that goes off at the site of a disturbance and pings in the brain and then bam you've got pain it's more you know that nerve signal sends messages back up to the brain and then there's a kind of amplification process that happens where the brain determines how much pain you're going to experience um, and perhaps for how long too and there's you know multimodal things that determine that amplification amplification it might be mood is a big thing we know if you're feeling more anxious if you're feeling lower you're likely to have a lower pain tolerance and threshold for example but also you know in terms of placebo the placebo effect and the nocebo effect if we think that something's dangerous we're kind of heightening that alarm signal in the brain um, where and that alarm signal in the brain is in the emotional part of the brain where pain is processed so it, it stands to reason that if we're considering something more of a threat it's going to amplify that pain signal wow so it's so powerful it, it always kind of amazes me just how complex and incredible the body is in all of this kind of feedback and working and and how much perhaps we so often kind of perhaps even take for granted in our body or just kind of um overlook all of these powerful complexities that that are going on and something that i find um or i've been looking into a little bit more in some of the research is also how um kind of psychology and the brain can impact um, even physiological processes. Mm. Um, uh, there was a really interesting study that came out recently and it was a small study. It was on about 39 participants with type two diabetes, but they gave them the same drink, but one was labeled as kind of like a high sugar drink. And one of them was labeled as a low sugar drink. Mm. And even though the participants drank the same drink, those who drank the drink that was labeled as high sugar had a higher um, rise in their blood glucose than mm. they thought they were drinking a low sugar drink. And I just, I thought that, that was so fascinating how the brain can be playing such a powerful role on our psychology, oh, on our physiology, sorry. Mm. Yeah. And then the physiology, like the pain we might be experiencing might be in our body might then play a role in, in our psychology. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw you, you um, made a post about that and I, yeah, I was blown away. It's great kind of um, evidence really, isn't it? For, for the role that our perception plays in what goes on in our body. And I mean, I kind of divide it up in, in pathways that, you know, there's, there's kind of indirect pathways, how we think about things, for example, or how we feel about things will impact um, our, of physiology indirectly so for example if we're really stressed about a deadline we're more likely to perhaps eat or drink alcohol or you know do something like that and that will then impact us physically so there's kind of indirect ways via health behaviors or whatnot but then the direct pathways the, the research is evolving and evolving and there's the kind of neurobiological pathways how our kind of um yeah, our neurochemistry is is altered, um, and then the you know the kind of um, 
yeah well i guess it's the, the same thing how our brain is responding in different ways to to what's going on um uh, yeah it, it it's it's ever evolving and i think sometimes the difficulty is it's it it might not always be generalizable you know because there's so many different potential pathways for things to have an effect and um, so it can be really hard to to observe it um and that's what we always want to do really understand what's going on and why this is happening but i think you know overwhelmingly the evidence does show that our, our perceptions and our emotions do have a physiological um impact for sure yeah and I think maybe that is an interesting um, way to segue into kind of IBS and thinking about IBS um, in terms of, of how these perceptions and emotions might, might play out in, in mm. that. But so just for anyone listening, I think IBS gets thrown around all of the time. And, and it's something that I think is so common uh, these days, people um, saying that they are experiencing IBS. Mm. I was hoping that you might be able to explain what that is for people, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, irritable bowel syndrome is what's called a functional um, gastro... God, the word... Gastrointestinal. <laughs> Gastrointestinal, yeah. <laughs> um, disorder or condition. And, um, yeah... I mean, you're right. Lots of people kind of say they have it. And I think the way that it's diagnosed is generally in this in, well, yeah, everywhere really is a diagnosis by exclusion. So usually people have some kind of symptoms and the symptoms in IBS are abdominal. So discomfort in the abdomen that might be bloating. It might be, you know, pain. It might be, you know, cramping um, and usually it's associated with um, disturbances in bowel habits so whether that's frequency or whether it's kind of stool consistency so looser stools harder stools or a fluctuation between two um, and so that's really what IBS is so the the kind of main criteria for IBS is what's called the Rome criteria and um, which has evolved based on the research over time but whenever you see a study of IBS usually they'll have used the Rome criteria to ensure that it is irritable bowel syndrome um, but interestingly this criteria isn't used in GP practices very much um, so what happens is that people will go with a symptom which seems to be related to their bowels um, or you know they'll just have kind of stomach cramps but maybe they're not experiencing very much to do with their bowels and they might go for um, you know different diagnostic tests some can be quite invasive they can be endoscopies um colonoscopies mm -hmm. so those are kind of cameras either down your throat into your esophagus or um through the anus and up to see you know in the bowels if there's anything going on um and there can also be scans um and stool tests and all sorts so all of these can be quite scary and it depends also you know your experience of that happening the doctors might be reassuring or they might be quite alarming or they might you know not say very much at all and you're left with your own kind of thoughts and and um worries about what might be going on and then inevitably people come back and you know if they don't find anything then there might be another diagnostic test or the doctor might say well we think it's IBS because we haven't found anything um, and I think that process of diagnosis can be really problematic because oftentimes 
in you know other conditions where the the diagnosis process is similar people are left thinking that they've been given this as a label just because the doctors can't be bothered mm -hmm. to look further or they you know they're not taking them seriously so it can come with a load of anxiety that label actually and um, because th there's a an idea in people's minds that something's been missed or that it could still evolve so they need to keep close check on their symptoms which of course kind of feeds into the cycle of the symptoms maintaining Mm. So yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, how much anxiety can can come up around that. And um, I know that we talked about whether it's it's kind of um, right or wrong. And I guess it's not so black and white to disclose personal experience. But mm. I had to have a colonoscopy a couple of years ago because I had a, a um, quote unquote red flag symptom, um, which was mm. some red blood um when wiping too much information mm -hmm. um, and um perhaps we we might want to touch on the red flags just for people to hear um and i ended up being referred to um a gastroenterologist um that was situated in um a cancer hospital and it was a really kind of nerve-wracking and scary experience just going for that appointment and then having to have the colonoscopy um with such little information on mm -hmm. you know whether i needed to be alarmed about my symptoms what they meant um what else i could be doing to empower myself maybe to um kind of um be doing other things like whether things i could be doing with breath or food etc um and it was such a daunting experience and i definitely have heard from other people that have felt so terrified by perhaps having to have a colonoscopy with such little explanation that it's just a routine checkup or it's kind of to rule stuff out um, that they've just kind of seized up and have been really reluctant to to do that um, mm. So I'm so glad that you that you touched on that. Um, but also I think what, what you touched on, which is really important, is how that might overlook some of the other things we might kind of think about empowering ourselves to be able to do. And we'll get to the, the mindfulness side of that because we're so focused on just like this, this, okay, well, I've just got IBS and kind of that it stops there, like because I haven't got anything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it is so difficult because um yeah, I mean there's there's a real difficulty I think in the healthcare system. You know, everybody's stretched for time and training varies widely and dispositions of healthcare professionals varies widely. And, and and knowledge isn't necessarily there you know there's loads of evidence to show that cbt is really effective for ibs um, and that ibs is a, a biopsychosocial condition so what that means is you know it's not just psychological that it's only caused by anxiety but that there's different factors um you know across the spectrum so bio biological physiological things that have caused the bowel to become deregulated and, and, and upset and maybe hypersensitive and then obviously the psychological element might be anxiety it might be you know thoughts about the bowel symptoms and we can talk about that a bit more and then you know the, the social aspect as well and that might be just you know societal attitudes to toileting that you know within your particular culture or within your family or within your group whatever that might be um, and how you've been brought up to think about um, going to the toilet and passing stools and farting and all 
all that stuff. So, you know, it really is a, an interlinking of all of those different areas in terms of the onset. And there's some really um, great studies looking at the onset of IBS and showing that it is, it is important, those different factors. So um, Rona Moss Morris, I think in 2013, did a paper looking at some of the predictive factors that, that um, were involved in onset of IBS. So they took a sample of um, individuals. I think this was the study where they looked at people who had a bout of gastroenteritis and a bout of um, glandular fever. And then they took some other measures of anxiety, depression, I think it was anxiety, depression, perfectionism, all or nothing behavior. Um, and then they measured again at six months who had then gone on to have IBS um, chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, they looked at, you know, what the predictive um, factors were. And in IBS, what they found was um, perfectionism was a predictive factor. Wow. It was all or nothing behavior. But importantly, um, whether, or, whether or not they'd had a bout of gastroenteritis um, was one of the most predictive factors. So, you know, we're, we're not diminishing the role of the kind of um, physiological factors involved in onset of IBS when we're talking about using CBT to reduce severity. And I, and I love that because I think what we're always thinking about here is, you know, we had that phrase, you know, mind over matter. Mm. And what I always like to think about, and I actually talk about it with my clients a lot, is could we think about mind and matter? Mm. Like, really focusing on the equal importance of the physiological um, and the psycholo psychological and how mm. they both play such an important role. Um, and just, um, I'm just curious in, in terms of also thinking about these different things that there's um, IBS being having a biopsychosocial component. It was really interesting, perhaps what you said, maybe that there's biological factors such as some kind of upset or bowel dysregulation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious, um, perhaps if there's any more bits you could speak to there about what that might kind of encompass. Yeah, so, you know, a bout of gastroenteritis is, is a common one, um, or it might be, and you know, like just for the listeners in case, a gastroenteritis being kind of like a some inflammation of the gut or kind of a tummy bug or... Yeah, exactly. A tummy bug, food poisoning, something like that, um, where, you know, you've, be, you've had an upset tummy, essentially. And um, one, I think it's Campylobacter is one of the... Um, particular infections that is commonly seen um, in IBS, uh, you know, onset, but it could be anything. And it could be, you know, going on holiday and we get a bout of um, constipation perhaps because our eating pattern and our circadian rhythms all out of whack because of jet lag and we're in a different country or whatever it might be. So our whole kind of rhythm is thrown off a little bit. And then when we come back, it's just deregulated and we've not got, you know, we, we don't find ways necessary or we're not thinking of ways to, to re-regulate because that's not really you know something we think about necessarily um, so it could be you know anything from an infection or it could be just anything you know where there's a, a period that um, throws our bowels kind of into dysregulation and again that could be a real period of intense stress um, so we know that stress impacts on our bowel function and if, if that's been ongoing then our bowels are going to be deregulated from that.
Wow. And so I'm curious on the biological aspect, just because that seems like more like the physical. Mm. I'm curious about perhaps the period of, of undereating or undernourishment and how that might impact or dysregulate the digestive system. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the first things we do in um, cognitive behavioral therapy for IBS is we just go through the physiology of the digestive system and the organ systems and how they work together. And um, we kind of talk through how our whole digestive system is activated by the process of eating so from the moment we start chewing food we get the enzymes in our saliva breaking down the food and then quickly it goes down the esophagus and that's a real um wide signal for the bowels to just get started and start up so you know if you've ever been on a plane and then people people start eating and then pretty soon after you see the line to the toilet and that's not because the food's gone down so quickly it's just because the bowels have started from the moment they've started eating and it's you know throwing out the old waste not that not the stuff that's just gone in um so you know the, the process of eating in itself is a, a big marker to to get the bowels moving and obviously then you know it depends what we're eating the the kind of nourishment our body's going to respond accordingly um, and if we're not getting the you know enough fibers or um you know actually you know water in our food maybe as well that will be, affect you know what's going on in our gut so when the food's traveling through uh, the large intestine that's where the stools are being formed and if there's kind of um, not enough activity, whether that's because we haven't eaten for a while um, or our bowels have kind of become deregulated, then the stools are gonna stay in there for a longer time and gonna be pushed on a lot slower. So what that means is more water is extracted from the stool form and then it gets harder and harder and it's harder to push along and it's harder to push out. Um, and then the opposite can happen, you know, it, maybe there's not very much food to go down and it just kind of whooshes straight out because our bowels are, are kind of quickly um, spasming and um, accelerating things. So then we get the kind of um, loose stool action. So um, if, if we go through periods of not eating enough, basically our bowels just kind of quick fire in response or you know the opposite might happen that they just they take a while to to um start up so it could go either way really but um either way it's it's not going to be comfortable necessarily yeah and i'm so grateful to you for, for clearing that up and, and something that i um see a, see a lot i guess and um something that I was really interested in when I did my master's in, in eating disorders is just how much lack of sort of adequate and sometimes consistent nourishment, um, which really feels like is so often being made the norm now that it's um, so often promoted um, that we should be kind of eating less or we should be fasting or we should be mm. cutting things out. And that actually when our body isn't getting enough fuel in, as you said, to kind of like start up that process and like get the digestive system kind of primed and kind of ready for, for processing of food, that so often we can perhaps experience this dysregulation of the bowels. And again, this is not saying this is the whole piece because we know it's very complex, a bit like there's mind and matter, but just how often that then people might experience things like really severe constipation um, mm -hmm. because there's, there's literally nothing in there to, to process and yeah. 
that whole system um, can slow down. We had that kind of delayed gastric emptying and kind of slur peristalsis. And that was just, you know, something that I didn't really learn until I was in my, you know, my master's degree that, that nobody had really been talking about. And yet, you know, dieting seems to be so pervasive and IBS seems to also be sort of something that more and more people seem to be talking about or at least digestive disturbances. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, when we um, did our trial, we got feedback from participants as well as just their measures. And a lot of the um, people in the interviews were kind of saying, you know, if only my GP would have told me just that bit about the physiology of the bowels when they told me I had IBS, I think things would look much different now. Um, and it, you know, it, obviously it's difficult for GPs. I'm not blaming them, but it does make such a difference just to understand what's going on in your body because we have this tendency to interpret symptoms and without, you know, particular knowledge, sometimes that interpretation can be a lot more alarming um, rather than, you know, having that knowledge and it feeling actually this is a normal, understandable process that's going on here. I thought I'd just jump in here and give a simplified overview of digestion. So digestion starts in the mouth. Um, When we chew food, we are breaking it down and we also get the release of some salivary amylase, which starts to break down some of the starches. And so we're kind of chewing and we're breaking the food down and we're digesting some of the starches and it starts to move towards the back of the throat and we swallow. And the bolus, that's what we call the food there, goes down the esophagus. And I think sometimes there's this assumption that it just goes down via gravity, but actually the esophagus is doing this thing called peristalsis, which is kind of like slowly moving to to transport the bolus down. And then it crosses something called the lower esophageal sphincter, which is this like little trap door that allows the food to move from our esophagus into the stomach. And as the food moves into the stomach, the stomach does something really awesome, which is called accommodation. And that's where it effectively relaxes. It's kind of this drop in pressure and expands. And it does this um, as a normal and natural process to allow more nutrients and energy into the stomach during the process of eating to meet our nutrient and energy requirements. So we always get this natural process of accommodation uh, to meet our needs. And in the stomach, we then get those um, that battery of acids, which is going to help to digest foods and um, kind of kill pathogens and bacteria that might get into the stomach. But the stomach also kind of churns itself. Our our stomach actually has a beat, um, which is really awesome. And I didn't actually know this until I um, studied this in my um, nutrition masters. But the stomach kind of beats. And so the food is also kind of crashing against the side of the stomach walls to to break it down into smaller pieces. Um, So that's what's going on in the stomach. And then the food moves down to another trapdoor in the bottom of the stomach um, called the pyloric sphincter. And what happens actually is as the food moves down towards the pyloric sphincter, you might think it would open, but actually it it, um, kind of uh, uh, shuts tightly. Sorry, I'm I'm mincing my words here. 
to stop the food from moving into the small intestine before it's kind of broken down further. So it shuts and again, then the, the contents of the stomach, they're banging against the sides of the walls and they're breaking down. And slowly, slowly that pyloric sphincter starts to open to only allow the smallest particles through first. And as the food moves from the stomach through that trap door at the bottom called the pyloric sphincter, it moves into the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum. And this is where we get lots of our um, different kind of digestive juices and bile to start breaking down um, the fats, carbohydrates and proteins into things like amino acids and glucose um, and triglycerides. Um, so we're doing most of the digestion in this part of the small intestine. And then we move into the next part of the small intestine. There's three parts called the jejunum or the jejunum, um, depending on how we're pronouncing it. And this is where we get the majority of our absorption taking place. So we're really absorbing in this part. And then into the ileum, where we get further absorption of some things that are absorbed in this later part of the small intestine. So B12 as an example of that. And then we move into the large intestine. And this is where we have our gut microbiota residing. So these are the trillions of bacteria that start to then digest fiber, which um, doesn't get digested and absorbed in the um, small intestine, but moves into that large intestine. And our, our microbiota or gut microbes feed off that fiber and they start producing um, what's called short chain fatty acids. And it's these short chain fatty acids that confer numerous benefits to our mental and our physical well-being. Um, and so that's what happens in that large intestine um, for the most part. And then it passes or, or what's left passes into the rectum and the anus. And then hopefully at some point we have a trip to the bathroom. So that's a, a very brief overview of a very complex, very intricately designed, very clever. I'm always really just thinking about how incredible the body is um, system that I thought would just be helpful to really get a sense of as we kind of move further into this conversation. And maybe let's let's touch on that. The the reaction might be kind of um, we might feel alarmed or or think things are alarming because I also thought it was really interesting that you mentioned as well as the biological component. There's this psychological and social component, mm -hmm. and um, you mentioned things like maybe um, perfectionism, and then also perhaps. Um, social attitudes towards bowel habits and things like farting or, or whatever that might be. Mm. But I'm really curious um, from kind of where, where I look at things about um, movements like perhaps clean eating and the ways in which perhaps society is viewing food or thinking about um, foods being good or bad or unhealthy or healthy, etc., and how that might play a role in how we might process them then at a physiological level or have, I guess, different interpretations of what we're experiencing in our bowel based on thoughts about what we're eating. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's not necessarily something that we, we looked at, um, but it would be a really interesting thing. Actually, you know, I, I would like to look into that to see if there has been stuff done. I'm sure there would be, but the way that I would understand you know the, the effect of that is you know just in the same way um 
we understand pain when we have a negative perception of what's going on what's causing the pain then it exacerbates that alarm signal and it's the same you know with i i would imagine with how we're viewing food if food is harmful um or perceived as harmful or bad um and something that we shouldn't be eating then you know that is likely to to cause increased sensitivity whether it's you know the the via kind of nerve signaling or other processes um or just the anxiety that comes with then eating it you know we know that anxiety and and stress impacts our bowel function it might speed it up or it might slow it down but it kind of impacts and we're we're going to feel that in our stomach and how it's working so i would imagine that would be the same and in the trial you know and in the the protocol for ibs one of the things that we're trying to do through educating people about how the bowel works is taking the fear out of food because we're showing people that actually what you've been identifying as problematic foods actually might not be that at all because the way that you've come to view foods as problematic is interpreting symptoms coming on within 10-15 minutes of eating but physically that's impossible for that particular food to have had a negative effect the, the, the act of eating might have because you've you know as we just explored there you've activated your stomach and it's um it's deregulated so it, it it's um having difficulty there but the specific food physically can't have it won't have met you know the, those problem areas by that time so um helping people to understand that um makes them more able then to experiment with reintroducing avoided foods just bit by bit you know at a pace that they feel comfortable doing so and we get them to be quite scientific um, and specific about that you know logging things and checking it out and then that soon gives them the confidence to reintegrate quite quickly other things that they've avoided um, and that helps to reduce the anxiety around those foods um, yeah yeah, uh, Sula, that's so interesting what you're saying about the timing. So I guess, do you, do you mean by that in the sense that when we pass, you know, eat something, let's, let's say it's gluten, just because I know that that's one that's kind of commonly demonized, which, you know, if you have celiac disease, you know, absolutely please avoid that. But I guess for the, the large majority of us, it's certainly not necessarily going to be harmful. And yet we see headlines all the time where we read things, I that book kind of wheat belly, and then we eat that. And perhaps 10 minutes later, we're starting to feel like we're having some kind of reaction. Mm. Are you saying that perhaps that wouldn't necessarily be something to do with the gut because it wouldn't have been able to kind of get there yet, right? Into the small intestine, large intestine. Yeah, but maybe the act of sort of eating it and maybe kind of thinking oh my goodness I've kind of I've eaten this thing and it's kind of going to be terrible for my gut and is, is it that that maybe starts producing some of, of what we are, are feeling that's very real in terms of some mm. kind of reaction but actually might not necessarily be the food itself but something else yeah absolutely so yeah like you say the mind and the matter so the matter is the the process of eating so that has caused some disturbance maybe and the mind part is yeah our perception and then maybe that's kind of activated some more symptom focusing um or some more kind of vigilance to what's going on in our body so we feel that a bit more because we're on high alert so the two are kind of acting in tan yeah in tandem maybe 
Yeah. And would you be able to perhaps explain a little bit more about what we mean by symptom focusing? Mm. Yeah. So symptom focusing is, is, is that process that we go through, you know, if you're um, worried uh, and maybe actually people can relate to this more at the moment because of coronavirus. So usually a cold wouldn't have been anything you'd really worry about too much mostly. Um, but now maybe you start to get that that back of the throat tickle and a slight sore throat. And then, you know, now more than when, you know, coronavirus wasn't really a thing for anybody, maybe you attend to that a bit more and that feels a lot more threatening. So perhaps we notice that and it continues more um, than it usually would do. Um, and yeah, it bothers us more than it usually would do. Or maybe we notice it sooner than we would have done, you know, prior to Corona times. So the, the idea is um, we kind of hone in on particular sensations that we're concerned about. And we see that all the time. So in health anxiety, which is a, a particular type of anxiety disorder, one of the kind of key um, mechanisms maintaining health anxiety is is this symptom focusing because a, a symptom is seen as really threatening and so we're plowing all this attention into it and one of the the great behavioral experiments we can do um, with clients is showing them you know can you feel anything in your um, left foot without really thinking about it. And usually people can't, they're not really feeling any sensation or, or they might be feeling a little bit, but not much. And then you ask them to, to throw all of their in intention towards that left foot, just really take the time to, to notice what's going on there. Um, imagine, you know, that the, there's something you're concerned about there maybe, or just, just plant your attention there, whatever. And usually what they find, I mean, I haven't had anyone that hasn't had this yet, um, is that they notice a whole range of sensation because the, the body is responding to, to your command of let's see what's going on there. And so that, you know, that's an intentional way of focusing on a particular body area, but that's usually quite automatic when we're worried about a particular body area. So it's not like we're saying, oh, I must check down there but it's become really automatic because we're worried about it and it can be really difficult to disengage from that. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like, um, I just resonate so much with the COVID example that, yes. you know, it's almost like, Oh my gosh, is that a tickle? And then I go to smell something to check my smells there. And it's almost yeah. the magnifying the like thing that's just kind of that maybe a year ago, like I would have just been like, oh, I'm a little bit tired. I'll go to bed early. It's yeah. this, almost the symptom focusing can, can magnify. And it's a really powerful Absolutely. way that the brain can divert all of our attention into, and it could be like a gut symptom, like, or, or even something like fullness or, um, feeling constipated and, and all of our energy is, is there or bloating or those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Sula, I am curious about perhaps, you know, maybe sharing a couple of those interventions for perhaps um, IBS or anyone going through kind of gut symptoms that feel challenging or uncomfortable I mean obviously first point of call is going to be the GP to rule anything sinister out mm. I guess uh, I, I don't know if you'd agree with that yeah definitely um, and but I'm wondering perhaps from your PhD what people might have to kind of try at home in terms of more mindfulness CBT based exercises um, that might be useful 
Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that could be really helpful just to begin with is finding a YouTube video or something of, of understanding the digestive process to demystify that a little bit and to understand what happens when we eat. Um, and so that can give you a real clarity about that process. So it perhaps feels less threatening in and of itself um, and give a wider context to, to other strategies. Um, and I think, you know, there's a couple of strands. So specifically, you know, bowel related things, what I would say is try to specifically understand what some of the concerns are about your bowel symptoms and, you know, keep asking yourself, is that the worst bit? So often people go, oh, well, I might go out and need the toilet, which to me, I go out and there's lots of times I need the toilet. So it, that's not a concern in and of itself. So what's the worst thing about that? Well, if I need the toilet, um, and I can't find a toilet, I'll be caught short. And again, you know, what's the worst thing about that? Is it the fact that you're, you're worried you're going to have an accident and um, then you'll have hours to get home? Or is it the fact that you'll have an accident and people will see you? So trying to, you know, get to the very worst seed of what you think is going on. Um, and maybe it's not about that at all. Maybe it's, um, you know, I just can't cope when I have a bowel symptom, you know, it takes all my attentional focus and I can't concentrate. Um, but once you've identified, and there might be a load of different concerns, um, some of those, it's trying to, you know, weigh up how valid are they and are there other ways of um, coming to, to look at, it, at the situation. So often people have these kind of cognitive um, distortions or thinking errors we call them in CBT um, which can um, yeah kind of take over so for example I mentioned all or nothing thinking so that I can't cope if I get a bowel symptom is a good example of all or nothing thinking because likelihood is you do cope um, it just feels uncomfortable but by kind of thinking I can't cope it's categorical and it becomes more catastrophic and uncomfortable whereas if we can look at the nuance and say well I can't work to my maximum capacity which might be 100% if you're a very lucky human being or 90% um, but I can work to 50% well actually working to 50% when your your tummy's a bit funny is that so bad really can you make peace with that and how long will that go on for will it just be an hour we don't know it could be um you know let, let's see how that goes so it, it kind of you know um pulls down a little bit some of the alarm bells that come with some of these thought processes um so i i guess yeah just to kind of summarize that it's identifying some of the concerns and really unpacking them what what's at the heart of them and and then questioning them, evaluating them, seeing how true um, those thoughts are when you look at them in the light. And that can be difficult, you know, and if, if they all feel really valid, um, you know, my best advice is to go, go and get some support from a CBT therapist or your GP or, you know, another health professional. Um, but another really helpful thing, I think, when we're doing this work is the behavioural experiments that I mentioned. So, you know, with food or oh, I can't eat oats, for example, um, I know that I'll have a terrible time. So it's kind of setting up a safe behavioural experiment where we can say, actually, can you tolerate oats? And so if you've not been eating them at all, we're not saying go and have a big bowl of porridge, but it might be actually um, 
you know, what's the prediction here? Well, if I have a spoonful of porridge, um, I'll just have loose stools for the rest of the day and I'll just feel really, really uncomfortable. And you kind of rate how much you think that's going to happen. So 100% is completely and 0% is not at all. And so you've got the prediction, you've got the rating, and then you're, you set up your experimental condition. So again, just being really, you know, mindful and pragmatic about this don't go for the full bowl of oats but maybe just test out can you tolerate oats a little bit so maybe just have you know a spoonful of porridge one morning and then see you know by the end of the day how true was that prediction um did i have loose tools for the rest of the day um and if you know then you can kind of readjust your rating and then you can experiment okay can i just tolerate one spoonful um you know every day um or you know four days this week or something and see how i get on so you're kind of cumulatively adding evidence in to show that actually these predictions maybe aren't as valid as they feel and that reduces the anxiety about some of these things down and you can do that in loads of different ways it could be about going out if i go out when i need the toilet it's going to result in me having an accident so you could you know just start off small um where you need the toilet you know a 70 out of 100 and you only walk around the block um or just to the end of your road rather than go into the center of london and then you say actually could i hold on um and yeah you you find that you can <laughs> i haven't had anybody yeah. that finds they can't <laughs> um no I, I i love these exposures and i think it really mirrors i guess what what um some of the things that that I do in terms of um, helping somebody kind of foster that healthier relationship with food in terms of bringing a lot of these foods back in where perhaps there is very much that physiological what might happen in terms of bloating or feeling too full or all of these things but also there have been really entrenched and ingrained beliefs about these foods from the media and from um, kind of social media and, and nutrition mm. information that's kind of impacting that intersection between the, the mind and the matter that, that we spoke about so that sounds like such a powerful intervention yeah absolutely and then you know those are some of the, the bowel related kind of specific activities um and there's also things like you know um strengthening your sphincter muscles so that you've got more confidence and and you know you've also strengthened them um so you actually do have more control if you're worried about having accidents and you can just do that you know when you're over the toilet or you know in the comfort of your own home um so things like that can be really really helpful but you know then there's also the the more generalized ways of managing stress yeah. um, and anxiety and that's where we kind of look at some perfectionist standards or high standards they might not be you know perfectionist but they might be actually still quite high mm -hmm. um, and finding ways to to relax and disengage from anxiety so um yeah you know that can be many and varied but what we always try and do is get a balance so lots of times people are just in productive mode and they completely neglect self-care mode so trying each day to ensure that the segments of the day however big or small and however frequent that are dedicated to kind of replenishing your cup yeah i love that and i think it's so 
so important, this kind of self-care piece um, and around just meeting those kind of basic needs, such as, um, you know, food, sleep, but what can often, you know, shelter hydration. But um, I think that kind of emotional needs side of things can so often be cast aside. And I think that stress and anxiety piece is certainly what I'm just so interested in is yes, the general stress and anxiety, I guess, but what happens when I guess the stress and anxiety is directly about the food that's going in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's lots of things we can do when, when we're stressed and anxious, it, it pings off our fight or flight response. So we get all of these stress hormones permeating throughout the body and having impacts on, on our bowels, on, um, you know, our blood pressure and our heart rate perhaps. Um, and it leaves us feeling, you know, uncomfortable and, and even more anxious. So, um, I think we can do a number of things just to calm down that physical response to stress when we're noticing it um, things like um, the four two six breathing so that's where you breathe in um, if you can through your nose or nose and mouth even better um, for four seconds you hold it for two and then you breathe out for six and just a, some rounds of that breathing um, activates the parasympathetic nervous system which is the the soothing arm of the nervous system which calms the fight or flight down um, so breathing can be really good just to calm the body down if we're feeling anxious about perhaps it's you know pairing that with eating something that we're a bit nervous about or you know when we're going out and we're fearing we're going to have an accident um that can be really really useful and there's the box breathing as well where you kind of breathe in for four hold for four out for four hold for four and back round um, and people, you know, it's just up to people's preference what they prefer, whether it's the four, two, six, or the box breathing. Um, but yeah, I always talk about mindfulness, but I, I do have some caveats about using mindfulness for for stress reduction. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> so I'd be I'd be delighted to to hear those. And and just I was just thinking about the breathing, and I'm always fascinated about the physiology of, of that. And um, and we talk about some of the IBS and the mind gut axis and how there's that vagus nerve which is the longest nerve in the body which attaches kind of the gut to the brain and I'm always so interested how the um, diaphragm when it contracts um, and relaxes can hit that vagus nerve and almost sends that signal up to the brain to move us from that fight or flight mm -hmm. response into that parasympathetic nervous system rest yeah. digest feed and breed and again so interesting how all of these systems are at play um i'm i'm really interested to hear that caveat for mindfulness if you think it'd be helpful for listeners to to perhaps hear yeah absolutely i'm i'm a big big promoter of mindfulness um i use it myself and i i um teach it um, and I obviously I do it on Instagram as well um, on Tuesdays, but I um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what mindfulness is, and I think sometimes it gets equated with relaxation, um, and I think there's nothing wrong with aiming to relax um, at all. <laughs> I think it's really good <laughs> to aim to relax. So things like progressive muscle relaxation or a guided meditation that makes you feel relaxed is brilliant. But the the kind of idea of mindfulness is not that um 
yeah, it's not that it's not necessarily too relaxed, but it's to observe. And if we're able to observe, maybe we feel more relaxed, but oftentimes it can be really difficult to observe. And actually what we're observing is our minds really busy and we're feeling particular emotions and we're becoming aware of our sensations and that won't be relaxing, but that doesn't mean that that's not a helpful thing to do because we're kind of, um, building a metaphorical muscle um, in our minds of being able to step out of the thought stream and into the observer position which helps us to kind of decenter from the thoughts so they they don't feel as real and all-encompassing so we, we can't necessarily hope for that on every mindfulness practice but every time we're doing it it's like going to the gym and you know just doing the weights or whatever you might be doing um, in the gym to kind of build up particular muscle groups. Um, so, yeah, so the caveat is really using mindfulness in a consistent way rather than an ad hoc way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So using it cumulatively to build up that skill. So then it certainly will, you know, help with stress um, and, and reduce anxiety over time. But if we're trying to use it as a sticky plaster in a situation, actually, we just become more aware of our thoughts sometimes and they come flying at us and we're like, oh, my God, I do feel so anxious. And that can really not be the right measure in particular moments. We'd be better to switch into breathing and um you know calming our body down and things like that which can be mindful in itself but it just depends the focus of the practice i suppose and, and not to necessarily equate mindfulness with relaxation I, I i love that and um i think it's so powerful and it really gets at all the nuance of all of these things and this podcast is all about nuance <laughs> um, and i actually um i was doing some cpd which is continuing professional development recently and it was talking about how um, some of these practices aren't about um, creating calm, but they're about connection and just being with some of the aliveness. And I thought mm. that that was so powerful. Mm. Um, wow. So, Sula, I'm curious, do you have any kind of last concluding thoughts for any listeners, perhaps anyone that is kind of feeling kind of anxious around food and having gut symptoms come up or just anything that, comes to you from your kind of place of expertise and wisdom in this area mm. yeah i mean one thing that i haven't really discussed very much but i think it, it's um really key for for a lot of us or i haven't come across one person that it's not key for yeah. <laughs> which is um you know these these high expectations of ourselves and our tendency to be really self-critical um, and I think, you know, when we're suffering, whether it's with anxiety around food or anxiety generally or our bowel symptoms, we kind of tend to double down and be extra hard on ourselves um, and throw more pressure on ourselves to get ourselves out of the situation. Um, which, you know, I think there's a lot of positive beliefs about being critical of yourself and how that's motivating. But actually, you know, research and my clinical practice suggests that actually it's more paralyzing than motivating. And if we can find a way to be a bit kinder and more gentle with ourselves, we're much more likely to be motivated and, and you know, help ourselves get out of the situation that's causing us suffering. So what I'd say is, you know, by all means, look for solutions to, to help yourself and do that with an attitude of 
kindness rather than extra pressure um and if it's difficult which it's bound to be and if it feels over facing you don't know where to start do reach do reach out for help sorry that's my dog <laughs> in the background but yeah do do look for help whether that's from a health professional or um you know a lot of nhs iap services now have long-term condition pathways um where their therapist should have been trained on the protocol of cbt for irritable bowel syndrome and that's free on the nhs although waiting lists vary um so yeah try not to to put the extra burden on yourself but re look look for spheres where you might get a bit of help for it as well uh, Sid, i'm so glad that you touched on that um and i think it's so true what you said about how we feel like it's somehow kind of motivating to i guess low-key bully ourselves mm. um when actually uh, and sometimes being kind is like this kind of leeway or like you know just letting ourselves off the hook when really the research is showing that the self-criticism can be so much more paralyzing. Mm. Um, I think we'll have to get you on for another episode on that because yeah, I'd love to. it's coming up a lot at the moment, um, certainly in things that I'm seeing in, in clinic. Um, Sula, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, I have definitely learned so much and, um, I thought um, I'm so grateful to you again for sharing your personal experience of coming to this work and just how much mindfulness was um, a powerful tool, I suppose, in helping to remove some of that symptom focusing um, mm. around the cystitis that you are you are experiencing. And also just so interesting um, because certainly I guess what I see and perhaps that's because I'm on the nutrition side of things is how it feels like IBS is something that we solve by removing food or doing mm. something with food and it's not to say that diet isn't important um, I know we haven't touched on low FODMAP um, uh, but and it's not to say that you know medications aren't important either but wow isn't it just fascinating that you know, there can be clinical effectiveness in just looking at some of these psychological tools that might be so much less invasive um, and kind of easy, easier. Mm. Maybe it's, it's wrong to say easier, but that may be um, implementable in, in people's lives. And I know that perhaps in terms of NHS and where their resources are, that that actually might be kind of more time consuming and and there might be uh, economic barriers there so it's really interesting to consider all the pieces of the puzzle but I guess the message that that you know I'd really like to get across to listeners is that you know if you're having some some gut symptoms perhaps to kind of be kind and compassionate on yourself and and yes to see the GP but to also know that it might not be things going on in the diet alone or food and that there might be a big psychological component uh involved i don't know if you'd add anything to that or or you have any kind of thoughts yeah no i i agree i think um i think yeah it's just it's hard to know where to start i think for for people and i, I the the challenge is isn't it as you say you know the resources but there there is you know growing accessibility of of cbt for ibs on the nhs so do explore that um, and and do yeah as you say kind of invest in looking after yourself because that will have beneficial you know effects for your for your gut health too 
Absolutely. Sila, do you want to let everyone know where they can find you? Yeah, um, I'm most active really on Instagram. I am on Twitter, but I've disengaged a bit because it feels like a, a much angrier place <laughs> over the last few years. We don't so, need that in lockdown. <laughs> no, we don't. So yeah, I'm on um, Instagram and my handle is um, the underscore health underscore psychologist underscore which is really catchy to say <laughs> i'll share it in the show now <laughs> um yeah so i'm there you know um posting bits about health psychology and things um and um i've got a, a medium um account which where i write some articles about health psychology mainly and um psychology um you know in in kind of practical applications as well Amazing. Well, Sila, I think, um, you know, I certainly think this area is so powerful and it's so exciting, I think, that more and more people are considering mind and matter together, um, and particularly in, in things like IBS. Um, so thank you so much for um, sharing all of your expertise on it and for all of your uh, work and contribution to this area. And I think... Um, I certainly think it's going to grow so much. Um, so it's been really, really fantastic to speak to you. And hopefully we'll have to get you on maybe to talk about some self-criticisms and self-compassion a little bit later on. But thank you that. so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> was Sula on all things stress, IBS and the gut and I just wanted to say thanks so much to Sula again for such a brilliant episode and something that I loved when hearing it back again was just how important it is to really be thinking about mind and matter when it comes to our health and well-being. Uh, please do make sure you go and follow Sula for more on health psychology and all things mindfulness and gut related. Uh, I will be back next week with another episode and also just a reminder to check out our sponsors and to say a big thank you to them Simprove for helping to support this episode have a great week bye